Okay, good evening everyone and welcome to the Pratt Library. My name is Reginald Harris. It's a great uh, pleasure to see all of you. Um, this is part of our series of bringing authors and having discussions here at the library. Um, you can find out more about what's going on in the next few months here in the lovely compass, um, which is on the table. And there's also a sign-up sheet over there uh, where you can get this delivered to you um, at home. And we also have some flyers for a couple of upcoming programs, um, and I want to highlight a couple of things. Uh, one is uh, Sunday, February 22nd, Annette Gordon-Reed, the winner of this year's National Book Award for Nonfiction, will be here talking about the Hemingses of Monticello, um, Thomas Jefferson, Sally Hemings, and their family. Um, very interesting book, very controversial, although I guess the National Book Award sort of she feels vindicated because when she first came out with that, people raked her over the coals, left and right. But there's a great deal of research in there that is incredible. And later on this week, um, Baltimore's own Tanahashi Coates will be here to uh, talk about his book, The Beautiful Struggle. Um, which is so Baltimore. It's an absolutely, and it's even so West Baltimore, and it's even so just this neighborhood. I read it. It's a great book. It's really fantastic, but I have to confess, reading it, I thought, how can anybody that didn't grow up over there understand what in the world he's talking about? But um, Tanahashi Coates, who is the, uh, who is the son of uh, the founder of Black Classic Press, Paul Coates, and is Paul coming? Paul's going to introduce him, which, if you've read the book, is pretty amazing. Um, yeah, he well, his, he tells the truth about his father. Let's put it that way. And it's quite, he's, he's an amazing man. But in any case, we have another amazing man for us today. Um, uh, and so it's a great pleasure to welcome Jabari Yassim back to the Pratt Library tonight to talk about his new book, What Obama Means for Our Culture, Our Politics, Our Future. We just figured out that this is uh, Jabari's third book, and this is a record. We have had him here for every single one of his books, so he, he, at least he knows he has a home. Next book, you're going to be here, so that's great. Um, and you'll find out why we keep bringing you back in just a second. Um, African Americans have often functioned as a kind of um, Rorschach test for the rest of the nation. Who or what others see when they look at a black person sometimes tells a lot more about who you are than about who that particular African American uh, you're looking at is. The various often ecstatic responses to first candidate and now president Barack Obama are particularly a delirious example of that. Uh, what, for example, are we to make of that recent piece in the New York Times where a female columnist confessed that she and her friends and her mother actually dream about Barack Obama when they go to sleep at night? Um, well, mother dreams that they that somehow Barack has divorced Michelle because she's just gotten too big and so wants to marry this retired uh, divorcee and live in Florida. Um, go figure. How did the United States seemingly overcome its violent racial history to elect the first African-American to its highest office? What role did previous groundbreak groundbreakers like Shirley Chisholm and Barbara Jordan play in last year's presidential primaries? And what part does hip-hop and pop popular culture 
play in all of this. Is there really a link between President Obama and the artist formerly known as, and now once again known as, Prince? And will, Obak, and will Barack and Michelle be starring in The Huxtables Go to the White House for the next four years? Uh, Jabari Seam helps us navigate through many of these issues in uh, What Obama Means. Editor-in-chief of the NAACP's The Crisis magazine, he spent 11 years at the Washington Post. We are all still crying over the loss of the print version of Book World down there, uh, where he was a deputy editor of the Book Review section and a syndicated columnist on political and social issues. Uh, former vice president of the National Book Critics Circle. He has been here to talk about his previous books, Not Guilty, 12 Black Men Speak Out on Law, Justice, and Life, and is also the author of The N-Word, which we have here available also, Who Can Say It, Who Shouldn't, and Why, as well as books for young adults and children. And as someone has already brought up, he recently appeared on that new staple of the book tour and political reportage, Comedy Central's The Colbert Report. Uh, reviewing what Obama means for Book Forum, uh, in these times, senior editor Salim Mukwatil says, in this compact, quietly ambitious way, Asim's books bristles with insights that will prove indispensable to, the make, to making sense of the Obama era. And we're very happy to have him here to uh, bristle for us tonight, Jabari Asim. Thank you. I'm going to grab this water before I get started. Uh, I'm, I'm very happy to be back here at, at Enoch Pratt. As Reggie said, it's my third time being here. And uh, it also has a certain uh, bittersweet quality for me because until August, I was living in Baltimore. I lived in Baltimore the last three years before moving to Illinois um, in the fall. So it's good to be back. Also, um, Reggie introduced, I think, the poet Frank X. Black, I think it was, at uh, Folger. He does so oh, many. Frank Walker, yeah. Uh, Frank Walker, sorry. Um, and he, um, he does so many introductions, he probably doesn't remember. But I was, I was sitting there, and I had to introduce another poet on the, on the same uh, evening. And I was uh, diplomatically, shall we say, I was casual in my preparation. And I'm sitting there, I'm thinking, I'll just say a couple of words, you know. And then... Reggie gets up, starts rolling all this poetry, and went on. I said, "Oh God, I have to go after that." You know, I said, "But the consolation is maybe one day Reggie will introduce me." So thank you; it's very gratifying. Um, yes, I talk a little bit about uh, what Obama means, and, and then you could talk to me if you're if you're so inclined and, and still awake. I won't take up uh, too much of your time. I will say that I'm not a political analyst; I'm a cultural critic, which is a, just a, a really ten dollar way. Uh, of saying that I will find any excuse to watch television, watch movies, listen to music, uh, read comic books, whatever I can put my hands on and call it popular culture. And I can always uh, say that I'm doing research. So that, that's sort of my approach to what I'm doing. I try to absorb a lot of material and see what conclusions, if any, I can draw from them. So uh, the other thing is that, you know, my if I have an agenda, it's it's merely... Uh, it merely revolves around the idea of being curious. Curiosity is my my primary impulse as a writer, uh, which again is a ten dollar word, uh, ten dollar way of saying that I'm nosy. So I was just kind of um, I'm always motivated by something I don't necessarily know too much about when I begin. Um, I don't necessarily know a great deal about it now, but hopefully I know a lot more than when I began. 
but one of the best ways to indulge your curiosity uh, actually is to write a book. And I wrote my previous book, The N-Word, because I wanted to uncover the history of one of the most hateful words in the English language. In the community I grew up in, um, all African-American community in St. Louis, our elders constantly chastised us about, uh, oh sure, uh, constantly chastised us about uh, the casual use of that epithet. And, and usually what our elders said was, uh, you wouldn't be so casual and reckless with that word if only you knew the history. We heard that all the time. If only you knew the history. You don't know your history. But they never told us the history. They would just kind of chastise us and walk away. And uh, the point of doing the book was to try to capture as much of that history as I could and put it between covers. So sort of as an argument solver, you know. So when, when, you're in, when you have this impulse to lecture somebody about the history attached to the word, you now have a, a handy volume that you can place in their hands. Uh, I wrote my new book. Uh, because I wanted to find out how our country arrived at this fascinating moment. Early in the primary season, I saw a lot of speculation about the impact of Obama's candidacy on American culture. And um, because I have a contrarian impulse, I wanted to reverse the equation, try to identify some of the things in the culture that made such a candidacy possible. Not Obama's campaign necessarily, but any truly competitive candidacy built around an African-American. And once I began to review some of these developments, to my initial surprise, I began to regard the idea of an African-American president as not only possible, but also inevitable. My exploration then became somewhat personal, as my own deeply entrenched skepticism kept running up against Obama's ultimately unstoppable momentum and the radical optimism he inspired. Among African-Americans who've left younger days behind, the memory of dreams deferred can lead to a wary perspective that tempts outsiders to dismiss it as unqualified cynicism. But watchfulness may actually be a better word. After emancipation, when unshackled jubilation gave way to anguish following the crushing end of Reconstruction, black Americans were forced to reconsider the wages of optimism. The slave went free, Du Bois wrote, stood a brief moment in the sun then move back again towards slavery. Hence a collective guardedness that sometimes has no basis other than an awareness that freedom can be snatched away if it is not fiercely defended. Do I believe the relative prosperity of the black middle class, Obama's successful capture of the presidency, and other notable advances will amount to just another brief moment in the sun? No, I don't. But our history here, forcefully reminds us that we will always, always need some individuals among us willing to watch our backs. As long as racial disparities exist, as long as there are problems particular to black people, loyal advocacy is not only desired, but also required. Obama has said as much himself around these questions of uh, whether or not we are in a, a post-race society. He writes in The Audacity of Hope, for black Americans, separation from the poor is never an option, and not just because of the color of our skin. And the conclusions the larger society draws from our color makes all of us only as free, only as respected as the least of us. Whether racism is the root cause of our problems is almost beside the point. Such issues demand the concentrated attention of men and women who will go at them with ferocity, intelligence, and love. 
In my view, Obama's phenomenal rise results from a ground-level version of harmonic convergence, the proper alignment of irreversible cultural trends, substantial political developments, and unstoppable market forces. Part of his emergence derives from Obama himself, of course, his charisma, his peerless eloquence, his seemingly effortless mastery of the issues, and the clarity with which he presents and pursues his agenda. But none of those qualities counters the fact that he appeared at exactly the right time and place in the course of American events. His very ascendance is a watershed moment. It has provoked consequences that will reach far beyond his fight for the White House. In addition to turning the old civil rights model of African-American leadership on its head in ways that I don't think even Obama could have foreseen, he has suggested a new framework of public service and leadership that will undoubtedly influence ambitious Americans of all backgrounds. Now, two entire decades before Obama's emergence, Eddie Williams and Milton Morris of the Joint Center for Political Studies outlined the future of black politics in remarkably prescient terms. In an essay in Ebony, they predicted, black politics is likely to be transformed. One such transformation will probably be in the way blacks formulate and articulate their goals the dynamics of presidential politics, and increasingly politics at other levels as well, will require blacks to forego race-specific articulation of policy objectives in favor of broader objectives that encompass black goals. Obama, as he himself has suggested, is at the center of that transformation that they predicted more than 20 years ago. But its roots are various and its seeds have been germinating for some time. As far as cultural trends pointing to a black presidency, they include the comfortable dominance of African American men in various categories of American art and entertainment, including movies, television, and music. The prevalence of such men in portrayals of characters in charge, police lieutenants, drill sergeants, presidents, and the enthusiasm with which the American public has greeted them. In addition to the presence of real-life black men as CEOs of influential multinational corporations. For example, the day after Obama's inauguration, the very day after he took the oath of office, Richard Parsons was named chairman of Citigroup Incorporated, one of the nation's largest and most powerful banking concerns. Earlier, Parsons had rebuffed New York Mayor Bloomberg's request that he run for mayor of that city. And uh, Richard Bloomberg is in, a, is in a fight right now to battle term limits in New York. He's been mayor for two terms. It's illegal for a mayor to serve more than two terms, but he's, he's currently fighting that. The reason why he's fighting that is because initially he had gone to Richard Parsons and asked him to run for mayor. And Parsons has said no. After he turned down Bloomberg, he turned down Barack Obama, who asked him to consider key posts in his administration. Finally, after turning those two down, he took the job at Citigroup. Now, knowledgeable observers were quoted in the, in the papers after he was named to this position, saying he's not much of an innovator, uh, but they praised him for his steady leadership during times of crisis. For example, when Time Warner was wrestling with the, uh, the implications and consequences of their merger with AOL, making them the wor then the world's largest media company. And they said, you know, Parsons is he's not the most creative guy, but he's a steady hand on the tiller. 
And Citigroup, of course, is in crisis now. So they brought him in because of his steady hand. Now, no news accounts about his new job. No news accounts I could find, I should add, made any mention of Parson, Parsons being the first African-American to head Citigroup. And that struck me as particularly interesting because when he, took the, when he took the top job at Time Warner, he was on the cover of Newsweek with two other men, Kenneth, Kenneth Chenault, who had been named CEO of American Express, and Stanley O'Neill, who was then head of Merrill Lynch. The article was called The New Black Power, and it talked about these three black men, all of whom rose uh, but were unanimous about their rise around one point. Race wasn't a factor. Uh, the magazine went on to say their rise clearly says something about a new level of opportunity that is now open to talented and dedicated people of color. They quoted Hugh Price, who was then president of the National Urban League. He said, this is a powerful affirmation to young people that anything is possible. And that's language, of course, that Obama echoed the night um, he celebrated his victory in Grant Park. Stanley O'Neill put it this way. It gives people a chance to see someone who looks like themselves and maybe create some thoughts of success in a way that's different. Parsons was on that cover, and that cover hit newsstands on January 21st, 2002, nearly, nearly seven years to the day before Obama took the oath of office. Political developments include the emergence of black mayors in many of the nation's largest cities, the eminent status of Colin Powell, and the worldwide reverence Nelson Mandela enjoys as a former head of state. The market forces include the role of famous black men as the most popular Madison Avenue pitch men in history. Standing confidently at the intersection of these important cultural strands, Obama has become a human embodiment of a tipping point, the leader and chief beneficiary of a positive social epidemic whose consequences for black Americans and the nation at large can only be good. The problem here is that few Americans know who and what they really are, Ralph Ellison observed in a 1970 essay. He was referring to the nation's white majority, but he often made similar comments about the dark-skinned minorities living in their midst. Our differences, he suggested, led to certain commonly held neuroses and uncertainties that prevented us from coming together, even though we knew that genuine unity was in all our best interest. Ellison called on whites to recognize aspects of their behavior, usually gleaned from popular culture, that they picked up from blacks and other Americans. In those elements, he argued, were the keys to solving the riddles of American identity. Now, it was an argument that had been made before. In 1925, the philosopher Alain Locke had suggested that the modern black American, then called the New Negro, was the augury of a new democracy in American culture. Locke's claim was an audacious one to make back then, but Obama's extraordinary ascent has given it the aura of prophecy. If there's anyone out there who still doubts that America is a place where all things are possible, the president-elect declared during his victory speech, who still wonders if the dream of our founders is alive in our time, who still questions the power of our democracy, Tonight is your answer. Decades before Obama ever set foot on Harvard's storied campus, Alain Locke flourished there. Initially, as a Harvard graduate and the nation's first black Rhodes Scholar, he tried to bypass racial categorization as an act of will. I am not 
a race problem, he declared in a 1907 letter to his mother. I am Alain Leroy Locke. But the realities of American and European racism intruded on his ambitious plans. As a professor at Howard University and as editor of The New Negro, a landmark anthology of black art and culture, he responded by working to portray the emerging generation of black intellectuals in the best possible terms. A philosopher by training, he saw art as a way to foster understanding between ethnic groups and advance the acceptance of blacks into mainstream American society. Locke wrote that the new Negro so defied simple description that he baffled not just race men, but nearly everyone else as well. The few who readily grasped the new Negro's meaning were members of the younger generation, who were vibrant with a new psychology, and whose awareness was proof of a new spirit awake in the masses. These changes had taken place, Locke wrote, under the very eyes of the professional observers. But in Locke's view, the thinking Negro, in the form of artists and intellectuals such as Langston Hughes, W.B. Du Bois, James Weldon Johnson, and Ann Spencer, confounded all the old ways of striving. As a result, they influenced in their fellow citizens a sudden reorientation of view, a new way of looking at the world and their possibilities in the world. Obama's victory has forced a similar change in perspective not just in African-American communities, but also in the nation at large. He suggests a new kind of optimism that is at once defiant in the face of challenging odds and dire circumstances and patriotic, in which a desire to improve oneself becomes inseparable from a desire to contribute to the country's revival. In his book, Dreams from My Father, Obama quotes a man who knew his dad. He tells Barack Jr. about the difficulties faced by educated Africans returning to their homeland. He said, of course, when we returned, we realized that our education did not always serve us so well, or the people who had sent us. There was all this messy history to deal with. The same is true for Obama and the new generation of African-American leaders that he represents. They are a fresh alternative offering exciting new options, not only for black communities, but the country at large. But they emerge even as age-old problems remain unaddressed and underlying injustices remain unpunished. Obama has promised that he, with our help, can deal with that messy history and make from it a new kind of politics, something vibrant, powerful, and transcendent. It will have to be constructed from the best of our traditions, he wrote in The Audacity of Hope, and will have to account for the darker aspects of our past. Because we often fear appearing dismissive or insufficiently attentive to our country's growing pains, often endured at the cost of lives and centuries of suffering, we end up tangled up in history. Obama's formula suggests a way out that could lead to the more perfect union we all hope for. The best we could do is hold him to it. We know that a few days of euphoria cannot undo nearly 400 years of hateful inaccuracies. To paraphrase Bayard Rustin, we are aware of the folly in attempting to provide psychological solutions to problems that are profoundly economic. But now, as Dana Hull observed in the San Jose Mercury News, and for at least the next four years, the most quoted, 
photographed, and broadcast face and voice will be that of a Harvard University-educated black man. It is the face Americans will turn to during national crises for information and reassurance. At the annual State of the Union address, it is a black man who will outline the goals and successes of the most powerful country on earth. A black commander-in-chief, who is also the nation's intellectual-in-chief, will inspire African Americans not only to celebrate intelligence, but also to expect nothing less. During his victory speech, Obama had spoken movingly of his parents and grandparents, all of whom died before his historic feat. In the days that followed, as I watched televised images of Obama rolling up his sleeves and confronting the work of remaking this nation, I couldn't help thinking again of Du Bois, who had thought so deeply and written so astutely about black struggle in America. In the souls of black folk, he envisioned the movements of an ambitious black man, unfettered by the bonds of racism. He wrote, he would not Africanize America, for America has much to teach the world and Africa. He would not bleach his Negro soul in a flood of white Americanism, for he knows that Negro blood has a message for the world. He simply wished to make it possible for a man to be both a Negro and an American without being cursed and spit upon by his fellows, without having the doors of opportunity closed roughly in his face. This, then, is the end of his striving, to be a co-worker in the kingdom of culture, to escape both death and isolation, to husband and use his best powers and his latent genius. While this extraordinary, unforgettable time may not be the end of striving, it is, at the very least, a beginning of unparalleled promise. Thank you.